finish my oatmeal, finish my coffee. I like how this is. I like how you're setting the scene. <laughs> Le- I I left the I left it on the coffee table, and I left the coffee table to go to my computer, and I'm just like <laughs> browsing around, looking at stuff on the website, and look at stuff online and everything. Just you know, doing my normal morning routine mm-hmm. of just getting ready before work, right? And suddenly, I start hearing a clinking noise, and Apollo is trying to eat the empty. <laughs> bowl of oatmeal my cat is trying to eat my oatmeal bowl and i'm like what are you doing you can't eat that he's like "Mm, this looks good (laughs) he's getting so brazen lately (laughs) he is he's he's getting brave and as as he gets older (laughs) truly welcome to talking underwater one water one podcast I am Katie Johns, Editor-in-Chief of Stormwater Solutions and Water Quality Products. And I'm Bob Crossan, Editorial Director for the Endeavor Water Group, including Waterworld and Wastewater Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we are going to give an update on Build America by America as we mark the one-year anniversary of its implementation. And we also touch on the EPA's first-ever Clean Water Act enforcement for PFAS and stormwater. Additionally, we share an update from the Chesapeake Bay Program Scientific and Technical Advisory Committee. And finally, our interview this month is with Pradeep Nagarajan, Integrated Water Management Technical Director for GHD. I spoke with Pradeep on all things flood control, including trends, technologies, and how the climate is playing into both of those things. But first, I'm going to pass it off to Bob to share the um, BABA update. Yeah, so I wanted to provide this update because, again, it's the one-year anniversary mark of Build America by America as of May 14th. That was when it actually went into effect. So first and foremost, I want to provide some background and some context for people who may not be as familiar with this. Build America by America is known as BABA. It is a domestic preference law that is included was included in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is also referred to as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or BIL, or Bill by EPA. The law outlines that if an infrastructure project uses federal funding, regardless of the kind of infrastructure constructed, that project's permanent installations must be 55% domestically produced. It does not replace the American Iron and Steel Act. This is an important note that American Iron and Steel Act is still in place and compliance must still happen with that act in addition to BABA. Um, And they both have very similar goals. For BABA, there are three categories of equipment that are referenced. Those categories are iron and steel products, which oftentimes people point to valves as the common product there. Manufactured products, such as blowers or other engineered equipment that has numerous components and it's all kind of built together in a housing. And construction materials, which include plastic, pipe, glass, and non-ferrous metals. Now, with all that context... Know that there is no, still no official guidance from the Made in America office nor from the U.S. EPA on how to make the 55% calculations for domestic preference, particularly as it relates to the complex products that are found in the manufactured product category. A lot of products have continued without the need to comply so far in 2022 and 2023 by using one of several waivers. There's a a whole host of them. And the most common of them is one in which if you have design work for a project recorded prior to May 14th of 2022, you do not have to comply with BABA as you started your process prior to the effective date of the law. 
Now, this is where we're going to get more into the thick of it. I have a couple of questions, four here actually, that are really big common questions that people are asking. And during the DC fly-in at the end of April, we heard from EPA a little bit on what is being thought about with these and kind of the direction that we're hearing. There's still a lot of non-answers because the guidance is still forthcoming, but this does provide a little bit of context and will give you as the listener, whether you're a consulting engineer, an engineer by trade, or a manufacturer or solutions provider, some information to go off of so that you kind of understand what's happening right now. So number one, who ensures compliance and who is responsible for compliance? The EPA says that this responsibility is placed on numerous shoulders, including the product manufacturers who must maintain accurate documentation, product suppliers who pass along documentation, the assistance recipient who ensures compliance, and the funding authority who provides oversight. The assistance recipient in this case is the person receiving the funding. The funding authority in this case would generally be the state who is providing the, the SRF funds. Two, how are subcomponents counted in manufactured products? This is a major question. It continues to be an enormous question mark for these manufacturers, especially for the manufactured products like blowers, where there's hundreds of small components in there, all that kind of work together to create an end goal product. The EPA does not currently have guidance, but they assured that guidance when released will clarify how subcomponents would be calculated. They also, the third question here is how should OEMs and solutions providers respond to seeing BABA compliance in the specs for projects that they are trying to bid on. EPA said it is reasonable for those suppliers to push back and say that the 55% calculation is not final and that no rule currently exists for compliance. So if you are a consultant or an engineer and you're sending out RFPs or bid specs for anything and you have a check mark on there or a checkbox for do you comply with BABA, expect pushback on it because there's no way for them to say they can or cannot comply at this moment in time. And number four, what about counting labor and assembly? And this is one of the larger contentions from the manufacturers because it is the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, operative word being jobs. So from their point of view, a, a big part of this is making sure that people have work here in the United, United States and bringing and onshoring that work in the U.S. for these pieces of equipment. But currently, as it stands in the current law and the language, labor is not counted for. Now, EBA said there are numerous comments on this particular element from all across the industry and across multiple industries saying that labor should be counted because it goes against the entire idea of the law trying to create jobs. They say that there will be answers on what is and isn't allowable for counting labor and assembly, but they did not provide any information on what that looks like. So that's currently the status of everything. For more information on where things stand, or if you want to get a bigger overview with more information, we have an article on waterworld.com from our editor, Jeremy Wolf. I'll include a link to it in the show notes of this episode so you can access it more easily. And of course, we'll be following this throughout the next however long it takes to receive guidance. The projected timelines were that potentially sometime this summer we'll see something from the Made in America office, and then it's going to take several months before... The EPA can put together information that they can then put out for public comment. 
So we're potentially looking at 2024 before we see any guidance whatsoever. So it's this is a really big issue. I think we're going to see a huge change in the in project timelines here and things are going to start stretching if we don't see guidance really soon so if again if you are an engineer or a consultant and you're trying to comply with this new law i really encourage you to look into it and to reach out to epa with your questions and whatnot because until there's more pressure to get this guidance out there it's going to really start to stretch timelines and it's going to start hurting budgets and uh, calculations for practically every business in the industry. So just wanted to point that out. Um, but onto different news that's more <laughs> potentially more interesting. Katie, you have stuff on the Clean Water Act enforcement in the Chesapeake Bay report. Yeah, thank you. So at the end of April, the US EPA made the first ever Clean Water Act enforcement for PFAS in stormwater. The EPA ordered the Keymore's company to take corrective measures to address PFAS and PFAS substances in stormwater and effluent discharges from a facility in West Virginia. According to a press release, quote, this is the first EPA Clean Water Act enforcement action ever taken to hold polluters accountable for discharging PFAS into the environment. The order on consent also directs Keymores to characterize the extent of PFAS contamination from discharges, end quote. According to the EPA, this facility exceeded permit effluent limits for PFOA and HFPO dimer acid on various dates from September 2018 through March 2023. They also said that Keymore's failed to properly operate and maintain all facilities and systems required for permit compliance. The press release said that as an initial step in characterizing PFAS and surface water discharges, the order requires Keymore's to implement an EPA-approved sampling plan to analyze PFAS and conduct analysis to further understand the presence of PFAS in stormwater and effluent discharge from the facility. So this was kind of big news that it was the first ever enforcement for PFAS and stormwater, especially on the heels of the EPA's um, PFAS MCLs proposal a couple months ago. Um, and we are, you know, it's it's not as talked about PFAS and stormwater, but I think it's only going to be talked about, um, you know, further as we, as we get farther into this. And then our final piece of news for this episode, a new report from the Chesapeake Bay Program Scientific and Technical Advisory Committee evaluates why progress to restore local river streams and the Chesapeake Bay has been slower than expected. A press release from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation said that non-point source nitrogen reduction efforts are currently not implemented fast enough and are less effective than expected, while agricultural best management practices are also not producing the reductions expected, particularly for phosphorus. The report also mentions possible factors such as groundwater lag times, that practices and programs are not as effective as expected, and that there's incomplete understanding of how nitrogen and phosphorus are used on the landscape. For some context, the bay water quality standards were met in 27% of bay waters in 1985, improving only to the mid-30% range in 2020. The report did list some opportunities for change, including but not limited to better target funding to areas that are generating the most pollution and shifting metrics. So I thought this was pretty interesting and, of course, lends itself to some questions on, you know, what they're going to be doing in the future and how they're going to start restoring these these streams and rivers and waterways they're talking about. Yeah. And when you think about this from a one water perspective as well, they have all this non-point source stuff and the agricultural best pra management practices going on as well. But it just shows that targeting only one or two different things doesn't necessarily result in the solutions that you were looking for or the numbers that you were expecting. And 
that there may be a more total water perspective or one water perspective needed to address this type of an issue at, at large. And then I guess my other question too, just reading this is, what types of things have been implemented and has funding been a barrier? Have there not been, a, has there not been enough money to address these, these issues from a treatment perspective as well? Because you have non-point sources, that sounds like something that treatment would be necessary and maybe there's just not enough implementation there. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a lot of questions, but of course we'll uh, be keeping uh, tabs on it. So stay updated on our website, stormwater.com. Um, I think with that, though, we're ready to jump into our interview. So here is my conversation with Pradeep from GHD. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talking Underwater. I am Katie Johns, and today I am joined by Pradeep Nagarajan, Integrated Water Management Technical Director for GHD. Today, we are going to be diving into all things flood control, so let's just jump right in. Um, Pradeep, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Katie. Of of course. So, First, I'm wondering if you can tell us what um, trends or solutions you are seeing right now for flood mitigation. Oh, flood mitigation is a is a a pretty broad topic. There there is extreme rain events, and there is localized events with localized problems, and there is national problems, and there are coastal. But I think flood mitigation has a lot of solutions that's been embarked by the municipalities, the federal governments, and the state governments trying to solve. But uh, I think some of the solutions you are looking at is pretty much related to the inland and the coastal mitigations, like green, 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 gray infrastructures, like you know ponds and upsizing the systems and and having pump stations. But I think those are still not realistically feasible to now with the climate change and the increased climate uh, precipitation and things. So they are coming up with some innovative aspects of, you know, smart sensor technologies, smart devices to make sure you can predict the flood controls prior so that the government can put in enough funding to provide solutions across the board. So. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that, you know, some of the solutions in place now aren't the most feasible. What do you think are some challenges in overcoming to, to get those to be more feasible, more usable? I think some of the major challenges, if you really look at it from a flood control perspective, is sure. the high intense storms mm-hmm. at a very short duration. So it's not like you have a storm for over two day period and slid, steadily it's flowing that you can find solutions to mitigate the flooding. It's like, take for example, the recent storm in the city of Fort Lauderdale. It was closer to a thousand design event. If somebody understands it, it's like quite a bit of rainfall in a very short duration. And you don't, you, you cannot provide an immediate solution to alleviate those flooding. So that, so the, the, the impact of the short duration increased intensity and, and, the, and the type of events that are occurring in the, over the last I would say decade is, is is pushing towards coming up with innovative solutions because the existing solutions is not something you can alleviate it tomorrow, you know. And and plus yeah. the inclusion of your storm surge, sea level rise, coastal impacts, everything comes together. Your groundwater table being high, that water is not able to go through the ground or, you know, so we, we, we there are several challenges but at the same time with with the with with the kind of technologies and it's 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 never stopping to be honest with you we come up with different types of 
efficient ways of mitigating those floods. And and to be honest with you, it's 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 a process. But I mm-hmm. think again, as I as I mentioned, right right now we are looking at nature based solutions. If that's that that is something that's first of all not that expensive when you want to bring a big storage tanks, you know, big uh, size pipes. If you're able to use natural resources, plus also, you know, use of digital innovations through technologies that you can predict some of these events ahead of time that you can reduce the costs from a community, overall community perspective, it makes the difference. So the challenges are there, but I think all the government as a whole, whether it's local, state, or the federal, or taking proactive measures to at least mitigate most of it. I'm not going to say solve the entire solution by no means, but we are getting there and there is more to do. Yeah, absolutely. So there were a, a couple of points you made in, in that answer that I want to talk about, but the first one was almost verbatim something I was going to say to you, which is <laughs> we're seeing an increase in storm intensity and frequency. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how mitigation plays into that and why these, you know, innovations are so important. Okay. So if, if when they say, you know, increased storms and, and, and yeah. intensity, think of it this way, it's, it's, it's not just one storm I'm talking about. So you, mm-hmm. you, you don't anticipate the nature to have one storm on stock. So even if you have a, let's say the ground is dry, you have a big storm, maybe the first storm effects will not be felt that much by the community, whether it's inland or coastal. But let's say, especially in the state of Florida or, or where you have hurricane sure. level events that comes on a quite regular basis mm-hmm. that you don't have the time or the resources to immediately find solutions to by the time you try to deal with one, there is a succession of storms that are a very high intensity coming in. So when it comes to the mitigation measures, that's right. So we, 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 Obviously, we use several engineering methods to solve these flood mitigations, whether through, you know, tidal gates or, or silt barriers or wetland mm-hmm. ponds or sites. But I think there is much more to it. It's, it's almost like you you sort of, you know, flood control, you sort of do sort of an adaptive plan of sure. prioritizing the areas where you have the most impact because we don't have the resources or the dollars to spend on everything try to solve everything so the way i think we 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 are looking at today is with the with with such of such a drastic change in climate and the weather trends we are seeing we are looking to see mitigation more of a more on a long term approach of solving uh, through already available solutions make the best use of what you already have especially in terms of your infrastructure because you have only so much land you can build only so much so but we try to integrate that's why it's an integrated water management system sure. because we try to integrate all the other systems as well. Try to see where is the best possible way to find those mitigations. So, so, so the, the the solutions are there. It's just think of it as more of a combination of multiple ways to provide those solutions. Not just one solution fits all approach will never work. The flood mitigation, and the other and the other aspect is is, is where we go from here is is through is through the design. So you asked about the, the 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 innovation is one thing, designing those innovations is another thing. So if you look at in today's market is to get a better better understanding in a realistic way, they talk about building an information model of the system mm-hmm. that's there so that you can understand what's going to happen, at least get a better understanding to make more informed decisions. You know, there are digital twins, which has sure. been taking a big role in terms of finding solutions for flood mitigations 
and obviously you have a very widely usedly used word is your ai and machine learning analytics yep. which is which is a big thing that that most of the water sector is now beginning to understand how important it is because they just cannot be spending the money to build different things always right. so it's almost like you know understanding where we are what we are dealing with so these understanding of through machine learning and ai of the water industry of the flooding of what events would impact where that's becoming much much more prominent and i think ghd to be honest with you i personally within ghd we we try to embark on that digital journey with an engineering sense to provide those optimized solutions that can be you know used for the future you know to solve flood mitigation as much as we can and as quickly as we can yeah absolutely and i one of my next questions was going to be if you can share any of you know the the ways that ghd is you know mitigating flood risk or doing flood control what practices you're all you're all using commonly over there if you could share some of that with us Yes I think uh, the, the the flood control methods means and methods are different based on areas sure. to be honest with you because yeah. it's purely dependent on topography and what systems they already have on what type of impacts they have so if you if you look at from the southeast the amount of rainfall and the impact of climate is much more when it compared to the west coast where you have a combination of drought and you know sudden burst of rainfall in essence but the the again the measures we the, we use especially if you take for a state of florida where i'm more yes. it's more prominent is you you again because of a flat topography you try to use what's already there so it's like using berms or tidal gates or or having a flood control measures of all of these water quality devices because water quality is also a prominent issue in certain states yeah. and and especially in state of florida so you use these nutrient reduction devices which sort of works both on a water quality perspective and sometimes on a water quantity perspective also and but again so and and in addition to that we 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 try to use smart sensor technologies to measure these flows automatically mm-hmm. get an understanding of where these flows comes from you know along the streams or along the pipes or along the inlets and get a better understanding of the watershed come up with uh, an innovative way of planning a particular community and i think ghd is sort of goes both ways and hand in hand and not just go one or the other because you do require both those technologies and 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 ghd is is able to pretty much you know in most of the communities across the nation we we have been in the forefront at least on the digital side and and on the engineering side in solving the solutions because again as i mentioned we cannot look flood mitigation as just rainfall alone right it has the impact of sewer systems getting infiltrated it has the impact of communities not having the enough methods to you know allow the water to flow so we we got to look at water wastewater storm water climate resilience you know, all as a planning level exercise but be able to come up with solutions i would say there is again that best fits for that community based on where they stand today and yeah, i think absolutely. ghd so ghd almost focuses clientile basis if you can understand what i'm trying to say you know it's it's yeah absolutely Yeah and I mean this is a one water podcast right so our goal here is to talk about how stormwater wastewater drinking water water yep. quality are all connected at the end of the day yep. so what you do to one you're going to impact the other sectors just as much and it does very much depend on a geographic region right you're not going to 
you're not going to treat water or handle stormwater the same way in Arizona as you would in Florida. We're doing right? exactly, so. <laughs> exactly, and because people tend to figure, tend to have a this 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 belief that hey, uh, their sandbags or something worked there. Why does it not work here? It doesn't right. work that way because you don't have that much of a slope for the water to come at that velocity to blow away the sandbags in Florida. In, in, in Georgia, it's, 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 uh, the, the topography is so steep at that speed, mm -hmm. everything will be washed away. I think it's important. And, and, and again, we do modeling technologies. We do several modeling analysis, 1D, 2D, digital technologies, ability to visualize the data, do predictive modeling, engineering design. So it's it's all sort of one water approach, you know. It's it's mm -hmm. almost like forming a what I what I call it as an adaptive dynamic planning among all of the water systems in place, not just the water systems. That's another thing is is we are, we are pretty strong, and I go towards this is it's how the community is going to help. So it's about mm -hmm. looking at the 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 community resources what they have to build with what they have to work with and looking at their resources and looking at technologies that they can afford financial now obviously they live either in a city or a county so how does the city budgets work with what are their capital improvement programs what are their transportation system looks like so it is just not water that's all i'm trying to say it is it is a I always call mitigating anything with respect to flooding or climate change or, or even from a resiliency aspect of it. It's a holistic approach of taking all branches of engineering into play to come up with the most as best as possible optimized solutions. Yeah. And that seems like a kind of a, a modern approach. I think we're seeing more, right, with the passage of passage of the IIJA, right? That is yeah. tackling infrastructure in, in many ways, not just yeah. water, but Yep. you know, railroads, highways, all of that. So it, and do you think, I mean, we keep talking about being adaptive. Do you think bills like that are going to lend the industry to being more adaptive down the road? I believe so. I hope so. Honestly <laughs> speaking, if you, if, again, I, I, I think, I think if you look at it, the, the different types of bills that has been passed over again, by state, federally, both from a locally and as much as today, I've heard that there's uh, there is almost a billion dollars of funding that's being sent for Florida, for mitigating the flooding based on the reason. Mm -hmm. So all I'm all I'm trying to say is it's it's obviously distributed across several sectors because everything is important. But I think it's how well you use it, sure. and and I think these the 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 rules, regulations, and policies are. As much as people, sometimes it's a headache. I'm not going to lie to it because <laughs> it depends on where you are and how, but it's important so that we, we know that there are ideas and solutions and technologies that can be put in place to meet those rules and regulations and policies so that we don't avoid such sort of, you know, calamities or anything of that nature in the future because it's, 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 it's a small Believe me, the cost is a small thing to pay in terms of lives. I look at it, but I think as engineers and as technologists and scientists, you know, we got to be able to provide those solutions in a most economical way. And I think these bills and rules and laws do help in that regard. And, yeah, and keep, absolutely. Let's put it this way: it keeps us in track sometimes. That's not just on the client and the engineer side, but also from the client's perspective and all the communities because they understand better.
Sure, absolutely. And in terms of, we've talked a little bit about kind of this digital transformation, whether it's digital twins or AI, how does that play into adaptability for this industry? Oh, it does. It is becoming very prominent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's because it's, it's in a very simple layman terms, everybody wants to know what's happening. Yeah. You know, engineering is as complicated as it is. It is sometimes from a layman's perspective, you want to present it in a much easier way. Mm-hmm. What more better way than digital transformation and showing sure. it in a dashboard? It's just, as they say, you know, the, the, sometimes the painting speaks more louder than the writing a document of pages. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is similar, you know, it's it's how well you show the system what's happening in, in this digital transformation and, and digital analytics and visualizing the data in a near real time to say if what will happen if an event app comes like this. It's all digitally related. It's all transformed digitally and it's all shown as much as we tend to believe it. They show the picture. Picture do has a lot of digital aspects behind it that we, mm-hmm. we really work towards it and it, it, it helps everybody to understand in a, in a way that they realize these projects are necessary. Otherwise, they don't. I, I cannot go talk technical to people who are not in this field, you know. So right. digital. So so having these digital technologies is not only to convey the information uh, to the public, or, or, but it helps to you know propagate all of the innovations and technologies in a more realistic way to the communities and the and the cities and counties. Yeah, so it's absolutely. a it's a big thing. It is a big thing, and it requires a lot like you're saying, a lot of collaboration between many different parties and making sure everyone's on the same page and can understand everything is is huge to these types of of projects. Yep, absolutely. Because we are working with GHD, working with, I'm personally working with numerous clients. The first thing is I have to ask is, Pratip, what happens when this system was going to work this way? Now, if I'm going to say technically, how many people do you think in the front of the board is going to understand? Whereas if I show it graphically to say, hey, if this rain event occurs, these are the systems that's going to have an impact. This is the place where it's going to flood. These are the areas you need to provide immediate solutions. And this is the plan you need to follow. Boom. I don't need to speak so many words. Just the <laughs> graphic will show the answers. But it, it, it is moving towards that. And, and water sector, as recently in the last several years, as I mentioned before, it's investing both from local governments to the state to federal are investing in looking at these digital technologies as a very important part of their future infrastructure and their resilience plan. Because you want to have your systems resilient over several decades and also sustainability today, you need to use these automation technologies. I'm not saying engineering is not important as much as they are important. The other things also play a big part. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, moving parts that, that play into successful, yeah. uh, you know, projects, mitigation tactics, whatever it be. It's whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Pradeep, you have answered all of my questions. I know we kind of just dipped our toes into this topic, yeah. <laughs> but I appreciate you sharing this kind of bird's eye um, view with us. But are there any, um, you know, last pressing things you want to you want to share before I let you go? Well, I think anyway, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk. And yeah. I think I I. I always say one thing is, is if, if, if you look at the top four sectors and when you go in front, in front of, you know, calamities and, and disruptions and the amount of dollars to flooding is one of the major things that's things. And we, and GHD did 
I, I, they do a detailed economic study on how much of a flooding impacts we are going to see mm-hmm. between now and 2050. And the amount of staggering, the amount of dollars, the cost it's going to take, it's staggering. It's several billions of dollars. But I think all I'm trying to say is, is it's important people to recognize that is, is there, there is a lot more to be done. There, yeah. But uh, we got to just do it in a way that's optimized at a cost effective with the best available resources and our technologies that we have. I guess Absolutely. that's for the opportunity. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing all of your insight. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, Pradeep, for that interview. That was full of great insight and knowledge, and I appreciate you taking the time. Before we wrap up our episode, I'm going to hand it over to Bob for a little housekeeping. Sure. So first things first, I'll talk about Waterworld. You can check out the May-June edition of Waterworld. It has some fantastic articles on PFAS in addition to a show preview for AWWA Ace 23 in Toronto, Canada. Visit waterworld.com magazine to subscribe and read the digital edition today. As for Wastewater Digest, as always, please visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Wastewater Digest. And while you're there, please hit the subscribe button. And also be sure to read the May-June issue of WWD as well. You can find that at wwdmag.com slash magazine. And for water quality products, we had a little bit of trouble with our Faces of the Industry nomination form. So nominations are still open for WQP Industry Icon and Young Pros. And you can make those nominations at www.wqpmag.com slash faces hyphen industry. And finally, for Stormwater we, Solutions, we are hosting StormCon in Dallas from August 29th to 31st. And we have an exclusive uh, 10% registration discount for listeners by visiting bit.ly slash stormconreg2023. Use the code OneWater10, all caps, to get 10% off your registration for the show. We hope to see you there. We have a great um, education track lined up. We're going to do a tour of the AT&T Stadium where the Dallas Cowboys played. So um, it'll be a great time. I hope to see you there. Um, And with that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at TalkingUnderwater at EndeavorB2B.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUWPodcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.